What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Blurring the lines of R&B, pop, rock, soul, funk, and more in the music world, no one compared to Prince. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We'll remember the musical legacy of Prince and many of its surprising turns. And later, we'll review the new album from pop superstar, Beyonce. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and time now to remember one of music's greats. That is 1999, of course, one of dozens of indelible hits from Prince. Uh, It is probably news to no one at this point, Greg. The music world suffered another very significant loss on April 21 when Prince Rogers Nelson was found dead in his recording studio and musical complex Paisley Park just outside of Minneapolis in Chanhassen. He was 57 years old. There has been a tremendous amount of media coverage. One of the things we like to do on Sound Opinions is go deeper into the music, into the legacy, and talk about some aspects of that incredible career that haven't been discussed as much. That's true, Jim. I think we want to get at the fact that Prince was a groundbreaker in so many different areas, and it all began in Minneapolis, a very unlikely place for a monster R&B musician to uh, take root in. And, you know, the fact that the population of Minneapolis is like 10% African-American. No, I I lived there twice in my career and worked there for two years each time. It it is a very white place. And yet it had this very active scene where African-American musicians were incorporated into that scene throughout the 70s. This was before all the MTV era and all the uh, attention was being paid to Prince. The so-called Minneapolis sound was being forged there. There's actually a great box set that the uh, Numero group based here in Chicago put out about that particular era. If you see me characters like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and Des Dickerson as part of that scene, the young Morris Day as a drummer, Andre Simone. Prince was uh, infiltrating some of these scenes and and playing with some of these musicians. But uh, when we spoke to uh, Des Dickerson years ago on Sound Opinions, he was telling us that Prince was almost like a, a mystery. He was the guy that would show up every once in a while, but everybody was thinking, there's this kid, and he plays all these instruments, and nobody really knows what he's all about, but there were there all these rumors about what a prodigy Prince was. He grew up in a broken home. His, his father was a jazz musician. He basically left behind a piano, and Prince taught himself to play piano and then went on to play just about every other instrument yeah. 
as a teenager, made his first two records, got signed to Warner Brothers Records. They said, kid, we got a great producer for you, Maurice White of Earth, Wind, and Fire. No, not interested. Don't really want to do that. Uh, what that's, about, a, that's a heavyweight to yeah. pair up. Uh, what was he, 17? Yeah. What about Quincy Jones? No, no. I, I really, <laughs> really want to do this thing on my own. Yeah. He, he basically won over the execs at Warner Brothers who said, you know, you're too young. You can't do this. And he basically said, you know, it's either my way or I'm, I'm gone. I'm not going to make this record for you. Nice remembrances in, in the last couple of uh, days uh, written by Lenny Warrenker and Mo Austin of Warner Brothers about how much faith and what the spark they saw in this kid. Yes. And in those first two records were prodigious achievements for a young man. The first one, For You, recorded, released in 1978. There's something like 25, 26 instruments on there. Mm. Prince played all of them, produced mm-hmm. all the music, wrote all the songs, you know, everything from electric guitar to bongos. I mean, he was playing it all. The 1979 self-titled record, Prince, that went gold. That kind of rewarded some of the faith that the record company had in Prince. Another one-man band effort. That contains the original version of I Feel For You, later on a big hit for his uh, idol, Chaka Khan. But I think with Dirty Mind in 1980, Jim, is where we see the revolution start, if you will. That, that was the name of the band as well that he dubbed in that era. Des Dickerson, the guitar player in that band, a, a very respected musician in that scene already, said that he wanted to be the Black Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. I think another way to look at it is that he was a huge Sly and the Family Stone fan, and he saw that model of that biracial co-ed band, and he wanted to bring it in to the 80s with the sound that he had in mind, you know, where synthesizers were replacing horns, where the beats were a little bit more rockish, there were more guitars involved in the mix. It was very much of a an amalgam of influences, really bringing the rock and new wave era thing into the R&B lexicon. The first thing he said to Warner Brothers is, don't make me an R&B guy. I right, don't want right. to be that. I don't want to be in any category. I want to explode the categories. Well, and he knew rock history because he said many times to Warner Bros. in the early days, Led Zeppelin makes people feel different on every song. I want to do that. Genre-wise, all of these sounds he's bringing together, sexually ambiguous, small, diminutive, but a towering figure in terms of the confidence he projected, Right. Well, absolutely. When you look at a song like When You Were Mine, it was impossible to pigeonhole that song. It sounded like New Wave, but it was made by this African-American from Minneapolis who happened to be wearing women's lingerie in the cover of his album. (laughs) So nobody quite knew what to make of it.
I think this whole idea about, you know, sex and salvation that's been a big part of his music was inherent in the way he portrayed himself, in the way he uh, chose his images, in the way he set up his band. It was very self-conscious to create a band that had these different characters playing different roles up there on stage. You weren't just looking at Prince, but the whole band. Greg, this thing about the sacred and the profane, spirituality and unbridled sexuality is one of the oldest tropes in R&B. I mean, look at some of the giants, Marvin Gaye, Al Green, what did Prince bring to this that was unique? He respected that tradition a lot, Jim, and he was very much playing within it, but I think he was expanding it out to have the entire band partake in that. You know, he was saying stuff like, I'd hug the bass player, he's a man, and I'd go kiss the keyboard player, she's a woman. This was playing out in front of the audience on stage, and it was creating a sensation like, what is going on? He was really kind of blurring those lines between sex and salvation in a big way. Yeah, it's clear that sex was very important to Prince, and it took him to a higher plane of consciousness. Listen to the sheer desire expressed in I Want to Be Your Lover. I mean, is there a better example in all of popular music about someone who wants it bad right now, and it's going to be great? I think when you think about Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye, I Want to Be Your Lover very much fits into that tradition. And those first two albums were just saturated with it. But I think it really got complicated with Dirty Mind. And then later on, he kept returning to this theme. You know, people would once in a while accuse him, well, well, Prince, you're starting to get a little too straight. And he says, oh, you think I'm I'm straight? Uh, You know, listen to this. There was that album that he wanted to release later on in the Warner Brothers years, Jim. The Black Album. Yeah, that finally came out many years later. A lot of people consider it one of the most lascivious R&B records ever made. It must be said that Filthy Prince is as (laughs) filthy as filthy music gets. Not for nothing did the parents... Music Resource Center gets so upset with him and start with him to lead the fight towards stickering, right? Tipper Gore infamously found her daughter listening to Darling Nikki, got very upset. I can't even tell you what that song's about, okay? And uh, and Prince became public enemy number one for nasty words, you know, and songs like Head and Soft and Wet. Dirty Prince was dirty, but I think, with rare exceptions, there is certainly anger toward women in his long musical canon. There are flashes of misogyny, even, you could argue, at times. But I think, for the most part, Prince loved and respected women in his music and also in real life. There are flashpoints. You know, he didn't get along well with Bonnie Raitt. There was going to be a collaboration there. Sinead O'Connor and he infamously clashed despite her doing that immortal version of his song, Nothing Compares to You. I can eat my dinner in a
Just listen to the list of women he collaborated with. Many have said he mentored, certainly gave them great material. Wendy and Lisa, members of his band, The Revolution. Sinead O'Connor, Sheila E., Sheena Easton, Rosie Gaines, Shaka Khan, The Bangles, Vanity Six, Apollonia. He really seemed to care about furthering the careers of female musicians. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a very underrated aspect of his career. I think the sex stuff, the so-called dirty stuff, a lot of that was celebratory, and I think he valued women's voices and also their input into music. A huge influence on him was Joni Mitchell, for example. Yeah. He never worked directly with Joni Mitchell, but he, you Wouldn't know, he would bring... that have been something to hear? Oh, absolutely. It would be fantastic. And Joni Mitchell was a huge influence on him, and he acknowledged her over and over again in interviews as, as a major influence on his music. And you could especially hear it on an album like Sign of the Times, where he was riffing on some of her material. Shaka Khan, you mentioned as one of the R&B greats that he brought back from, you know, obscurity, yeah. uh, it should be said, you know, and, and started working with her again. Gave her a huge uh, hit. And gave her a huge hit, I Feel For You. Mavis Staples, who was basically making phone calls to radio stations to work as a gospel DJ. I mean, basically couldn't get a gig. And out of the blue, Prince calls her and says, I want to work with you, and wrote and produced a couple of records with with Mavis. They called me Melody Cooley. I was here long So he had a great deal of respect for these voices and these artists across generations. A lot of people think Prince was just working with the prettiest girls, you know, but he was also working with artists and musicians that he respected regardless of gender. Let's take a listen to Prince working with one of those many female artists, Greg. This is him and Apollonia on Take Me With You on Sound Opinions.
That was Prince duetting with Apollonia on Take Me With You. We'll have more on the life and legacy of Prince in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we'll review the surprise new album from superstar Beyonce. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we are celebrating the life and music of Prince, who died at the age of 57, way too young, on April 21st, left behind a treasure trove of music, some of which we're uh, addressing now. If you want to get deep into his most iconic album, Purple Rain, we did an entire episode around that particular album, uh, talking to Wendy and Lisa, Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman, two of his uh, finest collaborators during that era, Jim. And that was an interesting era in his musical development, which you have called the psychedelic era in the early to mid-80s. Well, you know, nobody is talking about the psychedelic records. Uh, Everybody's talking about Purple Rain, right? But the records that followed, nobody's talking about. I think they are so far ahead of their time and so complicated in their genre-blurring mix of just insane sounds that people are still trying to figure them out. Pop, R&B, soul, rock, funk, psychedelia. The psychedelic influence begins to seep in with 1999 in 82. Comes to a full flourishing with Purple Rain, of course, right? The Hendrix nods, the Santana nods on the solo of that song. Prince was a masterful guitarist. 
then it really comes to full fruition on the album that follows, Around the World in a Day. As the follow-up to Purple Rain, this 85 record is a huge commercial disappointment. Nobody knows what Prince is doing. The cover sort of looks like Sgt. Pepper's, so everybody says this is an inferior Sgt. Pepper, lots of filigree, where's the Prince? I'm going to defend this album, okay, because I think it's a great album that was just requiring deeper listening than many people gave it. It's the album that gives us one indelible hit, Raspberry Beret. It gives us the song Paisley Park. That's what he would name the giant recording studio and complex he'd build in Chanhassen. You've been there. I've been there. There's nothing, 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 a strip mall, more nothing, nothing. By nothing, I mean like wheat fields or whatever it is, right? And then suddenly there's Paisley Park. Prince said of Paisley Park that it was an attitude. He said, this is a great quote, Paisley Park is in everybody's heart. It's not just something that I have the keys to. I was trying to say something, he's talking about the album and the song, about looking inside oneself to find perfection. Perfection is in everybody. Nobody's perfect. They never can be, but we can try to reach for it. What a great condensation of his entire career and ethos as an artist. I love this song. 
I love the contributions that Wendy and Lisa and the rest of the revolution are making to Around the World in a Day, and I love the follow-up. In 1986, he makes the record Parade. I think it's the last full-on psychedelic record. Parade is the soundtrack for Under the Cherry Moon. I can't defend his second film as much. It's not great. There's moments. There's some nice moments, right? But the album is just fantastic. I think those three records need to be in everyone's collection. And I think we've only begun to scratch the surface on the uh, trails blazed on this psychedelic triptych of albums. Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, Parade. You know, if Hendrix took the blues and soul and gospel to Mars with what he was doing in 67, 68, Prince, in the 80s with these three albums, took it further. It's going to Jupiter or Saturn, and I'm waiting for artists, and maybe they're out there, Janelle Monet is one, who are now going to take it to the next solar system. Paisley Park was sort of a double-edged sword, this $10 million facility. It's really an amazing place. <laughs> when you go, it's like, you it's know, it's his own version of Disney World, and completely outfitted in purple and gold colors. And, you know, there's the, the, the iconic glyph that he created for himself in the 90s. You know, all this all this Prince-oriented artwork and And the vaults coloring. of his, his different uh, stage outfits through yeah. the years. No, it, it, it's extraordinary. But I think it was a double-edged sword for him because, you know, not only did it enable his greatest creativity... But it also isolated him in a way from from the world. I think he liked that, but at the same time, I think it's no uh, coincidence that he died there as well. I mean, he literally lived there. It was Christ for weeks, months upon a time. He very seldom spent any time anywhere else. There was a long period there from the late '80s through the mid '90s where he didn't tour at all. But he was cranking out. These, this amazing trove of music. And I think you really saw the fruition of what he was doing in this kind of very isolated uh, place uh, with Sign of the Times. He had blown up the revolution at that point, okay? He said, you know, I've done everything I can with this band. I'm going to go back to the way it started, which was basically the one-man band approach. And he makes this masterpiece, Sign of the Times. He wants to make a triple album. Warner mm-hmm. Brothers is going, wait a minute, hold back. You know, they, they basically forced him to release a double album. Of course, all the music within that triple album eventually leaked out in, in different forms. But what an album. I think here is his masterpiece, Jim. I think if I were to say, what is the one Prince album you must own? Sign of the Times is it because it creates the widest sense of what he was about. You've got the rock and the funk of Sign of the Times, you know, which is a very topical song, probably the best topical song he wrote about, you know, addressing the AIDS era, drugs, gangs, you know, his uh, social commentary. Hurricane Annie Ripper stealing off a church and kill everyone inside. You turn on the telly and every other story is telling you somebody died. My sister killed a baby because she couldn't afford to feed it and it was sending people to the moon. September, my cousin tried Reva for the very first time. Now he's doing horse. It's June. Uh. Times 
got the heavy rock with the cross, melodic pop, the starfish and coffee song, a gospel influence on forever in my life, you know, housequake, a quintessential funk song. He's, he's listening to Luther Vandross and says, you know, I can do that better. And he, and he puts, out a, puts out a ballad called Adore, this incredible array of music. talking earlier about his empathy for women and his admiration for them. And, you know, there was this sense about Prince, well, he was kind of the, the taker, the Valentino, the seducer. There was an, an aggressive sexuality going on there. And I think he played against type on this record as well. When you listen to a song like If I Was Your Girlfriend, who was writing sentiments like that, that sense of empathy? Uh, I could never take the place of your man. A guy, I'm not worthy of you. You, 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 shouldn't, you shouldn't be wasting your time on me. You deserve better. And this begins a long period of isolation, Jim. But I think as, as a live performer, once he came out of that period of, of isolation and woodshedding with the songwriting, is where the, the next great era of Prince begins. No, it's true. If we're going to sum up the studio contributions, you made a daring statement, Sign of the Times, 1987 is the masterpiece. I would say you really have to own everything from for you in 1978 through I would really put it at uh, diamonds and pearls in 91 maybe a case can be made all the way up through the gold experience in 95 thereafter there are many records and they are hit and miss um prince lost the ability to edit himself the great Twin Cities music journalist friend of mine Marty Keller wrote a piece years ago about he was started to be surrounded by people who could no longer say, hey, Roger, that idea isn't so good. Maybe, you know, cut this or or don't cut that. I'm not saying there aren't great tracks on everything that follows from the mid-90s to the present. There are, but live is the forum. You're absolutely right. You know, always having that ability to, to give 150% in a three-hour show. And then when normal human beings would go have dinner and relax, he would show up at the small club, and do the after show that started at 4 in the morning. You and I saw many of those, and then play for three more hours, okay? 
Now, it wasn't always a great show. I have two that were awful, and it was usually his generosity. There was one show where Malcolm Jamal Warner of The Cosby Show was given like half an hour to do a rap showcase, and I remember one show dominated by the smooth jazz saxophonist Najee. Mm-hmm. It was like, Prince, man, you, you, don't, you shouldn't even be on the same block, let alone the same stage with that bozo. But of the 12 Prince shows I saw... Ten of them are way on that list of the best I've ever seen in my life. And they, and no two was alike, right? I mean, Never. It was a completely different show every time. That's the thing about him. He was like, people talk about the Grateful Dead, a different show every night. I mean, Prince was like that. I mean, you were never going to get the same show, and that's what was extraordinary about it. And he really made the case for a lot of those studio recordings. I am convinced that you could make a great two or three disc set of Prince's recordings from the last 20 years and make and it would hold up really well. People have dismissed that era of studio recording as as a waste. It's not. But, you know, the live performances, Jim, was where it really came uh, alive. I mean, hearing a song like Fury from one of his mid-2000s records on Saturday Night Live, I mean, that performance is like, wow! It was one of those things where you kind of ignored the recordings, but the live show was where it's at. And I think he made a really telling comment to me the last time I saw him at Paisley Park. He was working with the band at the time, uh, getting ready for another series of shows in Chicago. And he plays all these instruments, obviously. And I said, well, what's your favorite instrument now? And he goes, the band. Hmm. You know, which to me was a really telling. He'd become like Duke Ellington. You know, it was like, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm orchestrating this 20-piece band, and that is, that is what, what I'm really into right now. And it, it really was a big part of the entire last two decades of his career. Always in your heart, come what may, even though his mic get broken. Who's a guilty one when there ain't no judge or jury? Shout to the sun and to the one.
you see no. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Koch. Like so many of you listening, Prince is an artist that meant a lot to us, and we are trying to look at aspects of his legacy that haven't been discussed as much. Greg, everybody has talked about in the mainstream media coverage Prince writing Slave on his cheek. There is the celebrated war with Warner Brothers. Even his supporters there, Lenny Warrinker and Mo Austin, said sometimes we tried to get him to focus and not release so much music all the time. Prince rebelled against that. He left Warner Brothers. He went independent in many ways in that stretch of late 90s, early 2000s. He was breaking ground. I think you're the expert. You wrote the book on music technology. He was breaking ground uh, on on the way artists work now, you know, being their own record company in charge of their own flow of uh, music, of art. But then he also turned on the Internet. Make some sense of that for me. (laughs) Well, you know, Prince is never predictable. I mean, here's a guy who stenciled slave on his face at a time when he was, you know, he's probably made $30 million at Warner Brothers. So it wasn't exactly like a slave relationship. You were you were making money on it. I think what he's frustrated about working at Warner Brothers was the inability to release as much music as he wanted to. And this guy was incredibly prolific. In the 20 months as an indie artist, he released nine CDs worth of material. It's this outpouring of material. But what was different about it, Jim, was that he put it up on his website. He Mm. said, here, fans, take this. Order it. Buy it from me. Don't buy it from any record company. He, would, he didn't have a record company now to deal with. So he basically cut out the middleman. He cut out the retail stores, too. They were, they were upset about that, you know, the, the whole idea of the distributors uh, being cut out of, the, out of the equation. So here he is selling, uh, you know, a, a triple, quadruple box set for 30 to 50 bucks and keeping 95% of the profit on, on, on copies sold directly to his fans. And all of a sudden, all these other artists are turning around going, wait a minute, I'm only making 10% on a record, and that's after mm. I recoup my expenses. Suddenly, Prince was setting up a new business model for the music industry that the music industry was simply not ready to accept. I mean, everybody was talking smack about this guy. He's crazy. Uh, you know, he did pioneer the Internet uh, as, as a tool for speaking directly to his fans. He didn't do a great job as a businessman. You know, <laughs> filling orders wasn't, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't his forte. Um, and then later on, you know, basically saying the Internet is dead. And I think, he, again, he was a little bit ahead of his time in regard to, you know, he was doing that whole whack-a-mole thing. Any Prince uh, song shows up on the Internet without my approval, I'm going to take it down. Well, you can't you even know? find official videos on YouTube. He's been one of the most assiduous in, in sort of sticking to that program. So, you know, he, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth to an, an extent, but he's also about this whole idea of compensation. You know, if I'm going to put it out there, I expect to get compensated, and that's what he's really fighting against now is that the Internet is not treating artists the way it should. These streaming services are not a way for artists to profit. And in that sense, he was a bit of a profit because now you're seeing a lot of rebellion against these streaming services by mainstream artists. I think he was a pioneer in using the Internet as a tool for speaking directly to his fans. And I would have been fascinated, Jim, to see where he would have taken it in the next five to ten years had he been around to do it. Well, absolutely, Greg. Uh, But we have to wrap up this conversation, and it feels like we barely got started. You know, come and hang with the two of us in our basement. We'll play (laughs) Prince music. We'll talk all night. One thing I want to point to is the influence on other musicians. Let me read you a list, all right? Kendrick Lamar, D'Angelo, Beyonce, Shamir, De La Soul, the Weeknd, Outkast, Usher, Beck, Lady Gaga, Robin, Frank Ocean, Justin Timberlake. 
I could go on Mm -hmm. and on and on. I will make the argument, I think you'd back me up, that none of these artists would be possible, or certainly not the artists they are, without Prince's influence. Jim, there was one name you left off that list, and I think uh, it's a big one, Radiohead. Yeah, how could I forget, right? (laughs) A, A band that you wouldn't think would be in Prince's wheelhouse, but he covers Creep. Live at Coachella on two thousand in two thousand eight, um, he takes it off the internet when it's posted. But Radiohead insisted that it goes back on. Maybe that's the place to end, Greg. Uh, certainly, the music is going to live forever. The conversation will continue. But here is Prince playing "Creep" by Radiohead of all things in two thousand eight on Sound Opinions. Just like an angel Skin makes you cry I float out like a This beautiful world You wish you were special That wraps up our look back at the life and career of Prince, but you know we know that he had a huge impact on you, our listeners. What do you think were his greatest accomplishments, and what were the standouts for you in his long career? Leave us a message for the air at 888-859-1800. When we get back, we'll review the new visual album from Beyonce. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. They don't love you like I love you. Step down. They don't love you like I love you. Can't 
Can't you see there's no other man above you? What a wicked way to treat the girl that loves you. Oh, love, they don't love you like I love you. Oh, don't, they don't love you like I love you. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a little bit of the song Hold Up from the sixth solo album by Beyonce, Lemonade. Greg, I don't know if Beyonce even needs an introduction. She is one of the biggest pop superstars of the last 15 years. Born Beyonce Knowles, 1981, in Houston, Texas, began performing at age seven. Amazingly, she puts together a group with her cousin and some classmates. It's called Destiny's Child. They become a huge act in the 90s after debuting on Star Search for hit studio albums, and then it's Beyonce's turn to go solo. 2001, she breaks out on her own. Like I said, five albums followed. She becomes one of the biggest artists in the world, appearing at President Obama's second inauguration, marrying that guy, Jay-Z. I would only mention that because it's going to play a role in this record, Lemonade. Here is this new studio album. It appears suddenly via Tidal, the streaming service she co-owns with husband Jay-Z and several other artists. There are some stellar guest appearances, James Blake, Kendrick Lamar, The Weeknd, Jack White, and it's a visual album. The last record she said was a visual album. She made a video for every song on the album. This one, she took a different approach. There is one sort of thematically connected film for this entire record. Before we get into our opinions on Lemonade, we want to play you a track. This is the track with Jack White. It's called Don't Hurt Yourself on Sound Opinions. That is Don't Hurt Yourself from Beyonce. The new album is Lemonade. Jim, I remember Beyonce's first tour, her entering the arena on a bed 
looking like Cleopatra throwing flower petals to her minions. And there was always this sense of, you know, here's the queen entering the arena, a sense of remoteness about her. Well, that wall started coming down a little bit with the Beyonce album a couple of years ago. But here on the Lemonade record, I think that wall has come down completely. She's really ripping it up. The visual component is also extraordinary. I think that one-hour film that was done to accompany the music is extraordinary. It really gets to the idea of the psychological drama that's at the center of this record in the South. And the South is almost like another character in this song. You know, there's a lot of gossips talking about this album being a very direct look at her marriage to Jay-Z and how it was deeply troubled a couple of years ago. You know, nobody's going to be talking about that a couple of years from now. What's going to hold up is this music, and it's extraordinary. First of all, the musical chances she's taking. She's not working with the typical collaborator. There's this new singer-songwriter, Kevin Garrett, who's contributing to this record, this Mississippi-born MC, Khalif Brown, dubstep composer James Blake. I mean, references to Vampire Weekend and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's mm-hmm. Jack White. These are not typical... She's clearly thinking outside of pop music here. And her voice, the grit in her voice, really is moving to me. Even in a ballad like Sandcastles, which starts out like kind of an Adele song, becomes something else in the way she's singing lines in your face. What is it about you that I can't erase? And your face, what is it about you? Every promise don't work out that way. There's tears, there's, there's a passion in that voice, uh, the likes of which I've never heard from her. She just sounds dangerous, she sounds committed, but there's also this wide range of emotion in her singing that I think is the peak moment in her career. It's a buy it record for me. It's absolutely a buy it, Greg. It's a masterpiece. I'll just say that flat out. Two points I want to add to, to, to your discussion. Number one, where does the title come from? It comes from Jay-Z's grandma, who has a, uh, a line here saying when, when, you know, old cliche, when life serves me lemons, I make lemonade. I have no interest in, in really what's happening in the Beyonce-Jay-Z marriage. I mean, that's private. That's for them, okay? I think that's less interesting than Formation. She plays it on the Super Bowl. It becomes a huge political statement in the period of Black Lives Matter. Everybody's talking about that, right? Big scandal. And people are saying, well, this seems to be a personal album. Formation closes the record, right? But where are the politics? I'll tell you where the politics are. Malcolm X, at one point on this visual album, the voice is heard. The most disrespected person in America is the black woman. The most unprotected person in America is the black woman. The most neglected person in America is the black woman. That quote is significant because while this is an album about a black woman being hurt, maybe it's Beyonce, maybe Jay-Z did the hurting, I think it really is about the state of of womanhood in general and, and black women in particular not being respected, fighting for power, fighting for a voice. And Beyonce has dropped the artifice, extraordinary musical ambition, extraordinary lyrical ambition. This is the first time I'm buying the Queen Bee, really is the Queen Bee. So two enthusiastic buy-its. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit from a great new artist, Sainabo C. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gornley. Thank you.
mixing the sauces and I'll call you back Running around in the city, I run it, I like it, I'm busy, so I'll call you back On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Jim and Greg, this is David from Weston, Virginia. I had a comment about your Desert Island jukebox pick last week. You mentioned that American Girl by Tom Petty had been used twice in films to much acclaim. But I was surprised you failed to mention its use in Cameron Crowe's 1982 classic Fast Times at Richmond High. That was a seminal film for anyone growing up in that decade. Though American Girl wasn't included in the somewhat suspect soundtrack, it was, in my opinion, one of the songs that helped define that movie for a generation. Anyway, love the show. Keep up the good work. Hi, this is Phil from the Bronx, New York. I uh, just listened to the show with Bill McKibben, a person I truly admire for his activism. Um, as an activist myself, my own personal in- interest in the environment was sparked by music, especially the music of Midnight Oil. When I was about 12 or 13, I listened to Blue Sky Mining for the first time, and songs like River Runs Red and Antarctica really showed me the severity of our planetary crisis. So you cut all the tall trees down You poison the sky and the sea You've taken what's good from the ground But you left precious little for me songs continue to resonate and inspire, and to this day, it's particularly a big reason I'm an activist that I am. Anyway, thanks for the show. I'm a big fan as always. Take care. Hi, this is Suzanne Dolman from Waterman, Illinois, and I just listened to your Earth Day show, which was the best one I've ever heard. You guys are way less annoying than you usually are. And I wanted to tell you about, uh, there's another song that would really fit the bill, John Hyatt, Fly Back Home great song. I hope you can uh, play a little piece of that on your next show. Thanks so much, you guys. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Deborah from Austin, Texas, calling uh, about environmental songs that I liked. I always liked Randy Newman's Burn On about the Cuyahoga River catching on fire. I was totally unaware of it until I heard that song. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Because the Cuyahoga River goes smoking through my dreams Burn on Big River Burn on Jim and Greg, this is Sean from Minneapolis. I just got done listening to your episode on Earth Day. Probably our third day of mourning the loss of Prince, the great one. And I couldn't help but think to myself, you overlooked Prince's 2007 album, Planet Earth. It's been now nine years since the album came out, and the relevance that the album has now, more than ever, is astounding. The review you guys gave of that album at the time could not have been more wrong. It is a fantastic Prince album, and year two's inability to see that is truly behooving. Enjoy the show. 
Keep up the great work. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Imagine holding planet Earth in the palm of your hand With no regard for your place of birth or claim to any land the No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. 50 years from now, what will they say about us here? Did we care for the water and the fragile atmosphere?